It's time for the Burt Cohen Show. What is that American dream about anyway? Is it about government that serves, oh, the rich and powerful at the expense of the rest of us? Is it a government that uh, imposes certain religious points of view on everybody? Well, that may happen if something called the Tea Party, also known as the Republican Party, takes power in this upcoming election. But is the Tea Party the same thing as the social conservatives, the you know, the hard right uh, that has been more traditional? Is it something else? Are they one and the same? Are they oil and water? What is the Tea Party? And with us today is David Rosen on the Burt Cohen Show. Thanks very much for being with us, David. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's a pleasure to be uh, to join you. And uh, I don't know if I can fully explain the uh, Tea Party as a, in its totality. It's a fairly large movement, but... Well, we can I'd ask be glad a question. To contribute my two cents to this discussion. Well, we'll see uh, what we can do. It is a, a a big movement, and it is a big tent, which the Republicans haven't always had. And we'll find out how big a tent of it is, uh, the, and uh, look at various different aspects of it. And uh, David Rosen, our guest today, is author of Sex Scandals: America, Politics, and the Ritual of Public Shaming. And you say in this article. At the heart of this unstated agenda, this is the Tea Party agenda, at the heart of this unstated agenda are white Christian America's deep-seated fears of sex, race, and interracial pollution. Well, that sounds like, you know, the old uh, culture war, the old uh, Pat Buchanan culture war that's been around for, well, really since the uh, 1950s when the white Southern uh, uh, leadership uh took on rock and roll because there were fears of their white daughters uh, mixing with uh, young black men. And that's what rock and roll was all about. And we've had the, uh, the culture war ever since. But uh, I, I wonder how similar or distinct uh, the, the old culture warriors are from the new Tea Party people. You point out that the Tea Party intentionally tries to keep culture war issues at a distance and talk about economic issues only. Isn't there really a big chasm between libertarianism, libertarianism, uh, which could be, uh, I think, a lot of the Tea Party people, and social conservative? Isn't that a really huge chasm that divides them? Well, I think that's what I um, was pointing about, about this, you know, it's a very complex movement, and I think that on, on, it's, public agenda has been um, promoting what broadly this economic issues and and popular uh, empowerment issues uh, and so 
and it, and and that's been a very unifying theme for for many within the broad Tea Party movements from state to state and as well as nationally. Um, however, you know, and if you go to the and read the Tea Party materials, which I I'm somehow magically got on some Tea Party lists for some reason, um, they pushed social issues like uh, gay marriage and homosexuality and abortion, for example, way down the list of, of their uh, key topics that they want to address. And I think this is a very self-conscious strategy on their part to, to overcome the problems that the social conservatives and the culture wars advocates had, because most Americans really do not accept that particular uh, aspect of, of, of their, you know, as their life. They don't want to be restricted. Women and uh, do not want to have the freedom of choice that, that uh, Roe v. Wade provides them. And young people, especially anybody under 40 or 45, really wants to have a much more uh, fuller sexual life. And third is that um, homosexuality is seen as something that is a person's character. It's not, or a person's personality, or, or it's not a question of choice. You know, we, we've moved past that 1950s notion uh, of that somehow you choose to be gay. I mean, I, I think that one of the issues. So. I think the, the underpinning issues that uh, uh, drove the culture wars really don't have the kind of uh, power to uh, promote and propel a mass movement as, as readily, for example, as the economic and social empowerment issues that the Tea Party people are, uh, 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 you know, are appealing to. That said, and my article really tries to take it, to peel off that aspect of it, and look deeper into the, 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 what I would consider the, the, the heart of the issue. Again, we're dealing with very many of the same people who, uh, within the Christian and religious fundamentalist and right-wing sort of white power movements in this country who've been around, as you point out, since, since the Nixon and, per, and easy, earlier. I mean, I, my article goes back to the, no, I've written about the know-nothing movements, not in this article, but in other articles going back to the 1830s and 1840s, where religious ideology uh, was, uh, took the form of anti-Catholicism, and where you could see in the bed debate about uh, the Muslim center here in New York, this anti-Muslim uh, attempt to organize people, we see these themes reemerging and either um, becoming part of the overall ideological character of the Tea Party movement. And certainly, uh, President Obama is the convenient focus. He's a, a just perfect focus because it seems that both themes, the the uh, social conservatism and the uh, the fiscal, uh, not conservatives, but just the fiscal uh, insurrectionists, really, uh, can focus perfectly on on President Obama. And uh, you say in your article, David, that uh, Obama is, quote, the child of 21st century globalization, the symbolic representation of a hope uh, for a world without borders, without race prejudice, without right privilege. Is that, do you think, what's really at the crux of the rise of the, the Tea Party and their uh, tremendous uh, momentum that seems to have been the case in the past few months? Yeah, I, I personally feel that the the, the deep... Uh, the, what's motivating many people, and again, it's not all, within this Tea Party movement, is a fear that, that 
the, the great uh, period of what we call the um, the great the American dream that that half century since 1940s through the end of the or since the uh, turn of the 20th 21st century the great American dream that provided middle class and predominantly white American working class and, and lower middle class people with a great opportunity unprecedented financial uh, and personal sense of, of accomplishment has really uh, is really in crisis. And what we see within the Tea Party movement is a voicing of one way to respond to this crisis. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. And so the and to me the the underlying issues within this uh, sense of um, if you will white privilege or white skin privilege is a sense of that there's been a historic sense of entitlement that that not only did the previous generation bequeath to their children, but it was an assumption that the sense that the world and their lives would not change. And what we're, which, what we're uh, witnessing now is a kind of economic wreckage that has devastated the lives of working and middle class and poor people around this country. And, uh, a mo and, and, the, and the right, unfortunately, is giving not only a voice, but, it, but to, this, to this kind of sense of loss that people are experiencing, but also has conveniently found a target that pulls together a lot of crisscrossing issues including race, including religion, and including this notion of anti-governmentism, somehow that the government's responsible for all this. Right. Uh, and so Obama becomes the perfect target because he is all these things. I mean, the fiction about his, whether he was an American, the right. fiction about whether he's a Muslim, you know, the fiction uh, regarding, and, and most evidently by his, his actually being a child of an interracial couple, an inter- yeah, right internationally interracial couple, I think just points to the fact that, that something fundamental in this country has changed, and he becomes the target of, of the embodiment of that change. Yeah, uh, David, I think you're uh, getting something, hitting the nail on the head there, that uh, there's this fear. I mean, let's face it, uh, one of the big motivators in politics has always been fear. And when FDR said, you know, his famous quote about, I have nothing to fear but fear itself. That's because fear is so powerful. And it does seem like this kind of a, uh, I hate to use the term, but perfect storm right now where white middle class people who, you know, have felt uh, that this is our country, this is working for, you know, white middle class Protestant people for a long time, all of a sudden, the election of Obama seems to change that. And it's there's a lot of fear about losing that, for sure. And so, you know, there are people who can manipulate that fear very successfully. And we've had, obviously, the, the Fox uh, network uh, promoting them and really creating them. And that's, I suppose, that's somewhat of a different subject, the power that Fox has to create their own political agenda. They're, they're certainly not a news station. But uh, we are talking about if there's something really new that's come out of this, uh, uh, mixing the two. But there is uh, there's a, a lot of mixed opinion from what I've seen within the Tea Party ranks, and that's very interesting that you're getting uh, Tea Party emails and, and uh, keeping in touch with them. I Somehow their lists are uh, better, and they're keeping me off of there. But uh, there's one blogger from a group called The Victorious Opposition who says... 
social conservatism and fiscal conservatism are oil and water, and that they're two separate things. Uh, what's your reaction to that? I wonder why he says that. Well, I, I think, you know, um, there's a, uh, one could make the argument that the two are not the same. And similarly, for example, the, the, the fiscal conservatives tend to be more libertarian, right. and, and thus on one side, both anti-big government, but also anti-big corporate interests. If you're, if you're, quote-unquote, a purist about being a libertarian, you object to both extremes. And, and the fact that we have a country which is completely controlled by these, uh, I call it, we return to the trusts. A hundred years ago, right. Theodore Roosevelt organized the campaigns with many of the progressives of the day to fight the big trusts, the standard oil companies of the day, right. etc. Um, now, the whole country has returned to the age of the trusts. Every industry is dominated by a handful of gigantic conglomerate corporations, conglomerates, which are not only dominate the domestic market, but are, you know, help basically control the stabilize international capital. And our liberty, and then the government really serves that it's serves that the interests of those corporations. I mean, whether it's the financial services industry, the extraction industries like gas and coal and right. oil, etc., or the telecommunications industries. If we watch what's happening now with the merger of NBC and Comcast. And so, I mean, and we can keep going with the pharmaceutical industries, the healthcare industry, you name it, and you will find the same trust formation uh, dominating each one of the sectors of the economy. Right. So a true sort of traditional uh, classical libertarian would find objection to this and also would find objection to the way that the state uses its resources to basically stabilize and subsidize these corporations, in which we as taxpayers under, uh, are taxed and underwrite these private sectors through subsidies and other tax breaks that go on all the time. And now, so that's one half of the fellow's equation. The other half of the social conservatives who are pushing for traditional Christian Protestant moral values. I mean, they have an agenda based upon, which has been around the United States since the 18th, since the great revivals of the 1830s and 40s, that have really tried to define America as a, as a Christian uh, moralistic society. And the, the fact that these two things actually are in conflict with each other seems to be, you know, people ignore this fact, and so that they can go on with their merry way and and somehow keep these two extremes together within the, you know, within the Fox A media presentation, there won't be, these issues will not be confronting each other, because uh, if he has oil and water as his metaphor, I would say that, you know, sometimes you can actually, in, I would say maybe it's oil and vinegar, and that the two can be shaken up and made into uh, a salad uh, dressing of sorts. True, they do naturally separate, but... Taken together, uh, they work pretty well on salad. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Interesting point. Interesting point. They are different. We are talking with author David Rosen about uh, what is the Tea Party? Is it really part of the old-fashioned uh, culture war, or are they distinct from that? And and you're suggesting that maybe uh, there is some sort of an interesting combination, and there may be. The Tea Party members, uh, research has shown, are far more likely 
even though they talk about you know libertarian principles and being fiscal conservatives, they're far more likely to, to go to church every week, uh, and they're far more likely to be conservative Christians than the population as a whole. And on the, uh, uh, the cultural war side of it, Wendy Wright, who's president of the Evangelical Concerned Women for America, says with regard to the Tea Party, this is an opportunity for evangelicals to show how biblical principles are integral to America's foundation. And if we strip out those principles, if we ignore them and turn our back on them, then our foundation can't survive, and then uh, therefore our country can't survive. So it sounds like this is mixing, as you say, the oil and vinegar. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think she's, you know, they, you know, they're now uh, using this. I mean, it's a brilliant strategy on one side, and in right. fact, it's if uh, if you or your listeners have not read the article in the New Yorker by Jade Mayer a couple of weeks ago about the the Koch brothers, I I really recommend it because it really shows how big money and big corporate interests are using these many aspects, many groups within the Tea Parties to advance their own anti-regulation, pro-corporate growth uh, under the guise of this um, criticism of Washington. Uh, You know, so... this, the, the truth about these groups is just, you know, are, are, is out there. But unfortunately, the media, for the most part, particularly Fox, but also CNN and the rest of them, don't want to make these connections. And, and it's sad. And, 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 but again, I, I go back to the deeper issue always, which is the fact that people's lives are in really bad shape. And, yes. and people feel a, a major crisis as to where this country is going and that, and that simple answers thrown up by the by those who propose, you know, proponents of the Tea Party, how, resonate with some. Oh, well, there's an enemy. We call it Obama. We call it the, the 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 U.S. government. Let's change it. And sadly, you know, there's this is doesn't help us get to the to a real understanding of why things went wrong, where we currently stand, and how we potentially could redress these issues. Yeah, interesting. Can they pull it off? Can they uh, bring it together? Um, the Tea Party people and the uh, social conservatives. And you bring up that article uh, about the the Koch brothers. And they, the Koch brothers, as well as the National Organization for Marriage, a very uh, right-wing Christian uh, group that uh, wants to end the idea of equal marriage. They, you know, just want to have uh, marriage between one man and one woman. I assume they mean one white man and one white woman. Uh, maybe that's stretching a little bit, but certainly they have a very, they're motivated, National Organization for Marriage, are about a social agenda, a very, very right-wing social agenda imposing their views on everybody else. What about the Koch brothers? They're, between the Koch brothers and the National Organization for Marriage, they're putting, in these next few weeks before the election, they're putting in tremendous amounts of dollars. Are they... Are they working together? What is the motivation behind the Koch brothers? Are they social conservatives too, or is it just simple, uh, blatant, self-serving? You know, back to as you say, the trusts uh, pre-Teddy Roosevelt when uh, we had you know uh, an oligarchy. Are they trying to create an oligarchy and National Organization for Marriage and the other uh, right-wing Christian groups are going along with that? And why are they spending so much money together? Well, I, I don't. I mean, I don't really know enough uh, if uh, who funds this national 
Organization for Marriage. And I don't know. So it would be good to do some homework, and I'd be glad to come back to you with some more information about who funds them. The, the Koch brothers uh, have a long history of part of this right-wing, let's call it philanthropy, if you will, mm-hmm. of sponsoring, uh, you know, uh, or uh, both mostly think tanks and what's called astroturf groups mm-hmm. and uh, public relations firms that promote a kind of corporatist ideology. And uh, whether that's through, like, the American Enterprise Institute or other such kind of, quote-unquote, think tanks, um, they've played an, an insidious role in in whatever the issue might be, everything from stem cell research to the weather, the fact that there's an, uh, an environmental crisis going on, uh, they play a, on, uh, a role to basically facilitate short-term corporate gains that only enrich them and provide them with more money uh, in terms of profitability. I mean, so uh, as Jane Mayer, uh, you know, she details the workings of the, how the Koch brothers have... have uh, played this out over the last 20 years. I mean, it's a very useful uh, analysis for all of us. And similar studies could be done about other very well-to-do families that have played a similar similar role. Um, Again, I I think that there's there's a series of different distinct issues, whether it's about the family or anti-homosexual, quote-unquote, gay rights. Uh, You know, these are traditional traditionalists movements that want to preserve a certain status quo, which are in fact have long since passed. I mean, if the military has recognition that, 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 that they have to finally uh, give up this uh, don't ask, don't tell, we know that the major social institution in which, in a, you know, that drove integration in America, I mean, with, the, with Truman pushing through the rights of African-American soldiers to, to participate as equals within the military. And this was done 60 years ago. You know, and finally, this is being applied to, to men and women who are homosexuals, which has been you know, the operating modality of armies in, in the West for the last two decades. I mean, you know, whether it's the Israeli army or the British or the Dutch or whatever, this is a common practice. It hasn't caused any loss of, right. you know, military preparedness or, or the ability to, to engage in, in, in combat at the, at the, you know, at the sort of the grassroots level of, of and, you know, whether they're in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, so it's one of these issues that drag on because there's a fundamentalist belief that won't die, and there's a lot of support for it, um, and, and these are promoted by these well-to-do uh, philanthropic, if you will, organization, uh, family funds that, that sponsor this stuff because it adds and it supports a certain view, which, again, in the United States, I mean, looking at the young people in this country and the, and the changing demographics of who's an American, I mean, that, I think, is what scares a lot of these Christian right-wingers is that they see the handwriting on the wall. Within the next 20 years, 50% of the population, especially the population that's under 25, is going to be half of non-white, quote-unquote, stock from a non, you know, or non-traditional African Americans, Latinos, uh, Asian Americans, what have you, and that this I think freaks people out. This, yeah. the America that they've come to to identify with, the John Wayne of you know vision of America, is is like gone, 
And these people are holding on desperately to that myth in order to preserve their own privilege. And, and um, th this is what we're seeing through the, my, my belief at least, is this is what we're seeing in the form of the teabag movement, a desperate attempt to hold on to privilege. That's interesting because they feel like, uh, my sense is that a lot of the people who participate in it are you know, middle-class people who have been hurt and hurt badly, may have lost their homes, uh, yeah. felt like the government you know, has let them down. They don't seem to associate uh, the fact, and it's a fact, that these big corporations, the trusts, as they used to be called, are controlling government. I mean, government is, has been a uh, very willing uh, handmaiden, let's face it, but they haven't talked about... The, it seems that, that the working people who have been hurt identify and that their sense of, of freedom uh, is that, you know, the idea of taxing uh, and having regulations on these big, powerful uh, corporations, formerly known as trusts, uh, is anathema to them, that they're afraid of that because it may come down uh, to them. And it's, again, I, I use the term afraid because the the fear seems to be a huge part that's uniting two really disparate and distinct uh, uh, movements within what's now the Republican Party. And I wonder how much 9-11 may be part of it. And, and in the face of, of the, the terror of 9-11 coming to our doors here, you know, 3,000 innocent people being killed, might the Tea Party be riding on this fear, this desire for white safety, to protect the white middle class through, frankly, racist-driven imperialism, that that's part of it. And it plays in very easily with the the economic uh, fears, the uh, the fiscal insurrectionists, if you will, that, uh, you know, just, it, it's, again, like a perfect way of coming in there and, uh, you know, that... We something is wrong here. It's like when when the Soviet Union got the bomb in the 1950s. Well, they had to to blame somebody. The the you know must be some other. So they found the Rosenbergs and put them to death. Well, the Russians still had the bomb, but uh, you know, is it the other? Could they? It's so simple to say. Well, our problems are caused by this this perhaps illegitimate president who is, after all not one of us, and the blending, as you say, of Hispanic and, and the white culture kind of not being so dominant anymore. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wonder what, if, if it's stoppable at all. And we are talking with uh, Dave Rosen, author of Sex Scandals in America, Politics and the Ritual of Public Shaming, about, uh, well, the, the Tea Party. There has been We've talked about a divide within the Tea Party, but there may be a lot of unity around some of these issues that cause fear. And very recently, Dave, there was the Values Voter Summit in Washington, and it seems like those disparate uh, groups came together there. What can you tell us about the Values Voter Summit? Well, you know, I think um, um, there was an attempt to pull together some aspects of, of this disparate movement and to uh, perhaps provide a kind of unifying theme that would give them a common sort of identity in the public mind and within the media. Uh, so uh, I don't know if I could add more than what you've said, because and in fact, I mean, I think that there are disparate elements of these things that have cohered and that the Republican Party, uh, for better or worse, is, you know, it's got 
uh, it's jumping on the, the, the line, if you will, in order to, to secure a popular base around which to run a, a very mixed slate of candidates, yeah. some traditional O-line uh, country club Dem- uh, Republicans, as well as these Tea Party uh, sort of grassrootsy kind of activists. And whether you're, you know, so you can see it's an unholy alliance within the Republican Party, which might... Uh, break asunder, uh, or it might be able to be integrated into it as the Republicans move further to the right. And, and um, we have to see. I don't, I don't know quite where it's going. Right. Um, one of the issues that, that I think that's often overlooked in our consideration of this movement is this, the kind of missteps that the Obama administration took in, uh, as it came into office and not really hearing this unhappiness and this, this fear that was seeping through the country, and it allowed the Republicans to capture it and organize it, and, uh, and these right-wing groups to, to basically give voice to this, uh, this fear and unhappiness. And I think that was a political era of the first, or, first magnitude. Specifically, I think the, the, the inability or the unwillingness in the compromises that the Obama administration made mm-hmm. to get uh, support for... Uh, their um, stimulus program, as well as what happened under Bush with the TARP, that is, they didn't tie the support for the banks and AIG, et cetera, to any real help for ordinary Americans going through this foreclosure nightmare and any kind of long term, you know, uh, particularly that issue. I think it was in a sense that they, that they appeared to give uh, support to the rich and powerful at the expense of those who are really suffering in the ordinary daily life of working people in this country. And I, I, I don't, I think failure to provide that connection, to link these two sort of programs together, that is, will help the banks if that banks will help the, the homeowners. Without tying these things together, he cre- the Obama administration allowed this uh, himself or the, the administration to be basically fragmented that he's pro-bank and he's not for the common man, if you will. Interesting. And I think this is the, the, the legacy of, uh, and this is what the reaction against and the uh, Obama uh, is as we see it, or the Democrats as we see the 2010 election approaching. Had this link been made and had they fought and, and insisted that without that deal, the, these other guys wouldn't get uh, support, um, and had he taken a much more principled stand against the Know Nothing or the No Party of the Republicans, right. I think that some of the rage against him would have been, and, and the Democrats in particular, would have been blunted because then there would have been an even-handed approach, both to support the rich and the powerful on one side, and the ordinary working person on the other side who's getting screwed. And um, I think this that opening provided a wedge that has essentially given voice, and that's why the Republicans have been able to capture this, this uh, fearful movement of the right. And so a lot of that could have been moved over into a, a much more uh, evenly divided political, political set of issues. Very interesting point. I mean, it's clear that the, that the Fox Party has, has helped create the Tea Party and fan the flames, but I think you make a very, very interesting point that, that, that Obama— by by doing that, by helping the big banks and not the regular people, he helped the Tea Party grow too. Very interesting point that I I hadn't really uh, thought about. And yeah, Obama, 
you know, he hasn't uh, lived up to the hopes, but how could he raise the hopes so high? Uh, and it, it's interesting, when I read somewhere about basically two wings of the Tea Party movement that may be coming together that, that could be defined as one wing being the Sarah Palin wing, which is mainly rural and certainly very religious-oriented. Then there's the Ron Paul, Rand Paul wing, which is mainly urban, more cerebral, and more concerned with the long-term economic success of the United States. But this fear uh, of the, you know, the Obama administration not really serving the average working people seems to uh, be the impetus uh, to unite them. Uh, it's the Burt Cohen Show. We're talking with David Rosen, author of Sex Scandals, America, Politics, and the Ritual of Public Shaming. And let's get into sex a little bit here. Okay. <laughs> oh, everybody perks up their ears right now. Uh, you know, money is one thing, but sex. Well, how, how much do you think attitudes about sexuality define the Tea Party? And any indication that their position on sexuality uh, resonates. And then again, there's the tremendous hypocrisy about people like uh, Palladino, who's running for governor of New York, and uh, the, the hypocrisy there. How much does their concern about sex, their America's deep-seated fear of sex, uh, race, and interracial pollution form what has become the Tea Party? Well, again, I think going back to your, to your division between, if you would call it, the Christian fundamentalist side on one, right. and the uh, libertarian side, uh, not so much by the younger Paul, but by his father. Right. Uh, he's more traditional uh, libertarian. I, I think that that really uh, divides the movement. And I think that the, the women, I mean, the most illuminating part for me of the current sort of congressional and senatorial and, and campaigns at, are these quote-unquote Republican women, what... Uh, Sarah Palin likes to call, what did she call them again, the, uh, the Mama Grizzlies. Oh, yes. And that these women, and, you know, there's a half a dozen of them who are sort of mirror images of Sarah, uh, Sarah Palin, Palin right. particular women like uh, Christine O'Donnell, Michelle Bachman, uh, what's her name, the woman from South Carolina, Nikki Haley. Oh, yeah, yeah, Nikki Haley, yeah. Um, Sharon Engel. Yes. These women really reflect a kind of weird, to me at least, sort of sexualized asexuality, in that they, they're they not the old school, you know, women of, uh, I mean, they, they reflect a popular sexuality that uh, is very much in keeping with the on-air news talents uh, that populate uh, all the sort of TV shows. <laughs> you know, you have to look slim and sleek and coiffed uh, and bejeweled. And that you and and radiate a kind of personality, a, a presence, an on-air presence that's appealing and sexually, uh, you know, suggestive. Oh yeah. Um, nothing lewd and nothing um, too much over the top, but but with a flourish of kind of a sexual self. Sure. And this is a kind of a weird part. I mean, and what makes it it interesting is that within the Christian right. Uh, and particularly the culture wars, Christian uh, evangelical right, there's a, there's a very interesting divide among younger, set what you would broadly consider to be sex-positive feminism uh, for the good of, and, you know, like there are sex guides and women buy sex toys or husbands and wives buy this stuff. There's even marriage counselors to, to help 
couples enhance their sexuality within the Christian right movement. Uh, these groups are really distinct from the more traditional um, country clubs, sort of just the, the patrician woman who seems asexual mm-hmm. and who's remained in office or, or, or you know, like the Meg Ryan, you know, Meg Whitman's, etc., who are accomplished asexual women in, in their public persona. Right. And so you have this tension at the heart of, the, of this Christian evangelical movement as to what the role of sex is. But in both, particularly within the Christian evangelical movement, uh, and as little as one can understand from what's been uh, reported about these, uh, publicly reported about all these various candidates, they adhere to a belief that sex and is really a, f- a fulfillment of the patriarchal vision that the male and the husband uh, is the head of the household, and their job as women is to please the husband. And so everything is really around reflecting a conventional attitude and beliefs about, um, you know, that, that the husband is, is the breadwinner, he's the powerful one, and their job as women, in a sexual sense, is to please him through, through, through marital sex, that's, that's, you know, whatever they want to do in the name. And it's, it's a very, this is not old school, you know, missionary position kind of stuff. They're into all kinds of body oils and music and sex toys and uh, wearing sexy outfits. It's all designed to help support and preserve the notion of the traditional family and the role of the husband as the powerful one. Interesting. And, and this is, I mean, this is the unspoken part. And it was, again, it was part of the debates that went on in the culture wars, but it's really not discussed. And so what's fascinating when you look at these women who are running in these various offices um, around the country under the guy, under the banner of the of the, um, the Tea Party movement, if you look at the polling data about this stuff, um, it, what's amazing is that men prefer these women more than women. That the sexual appeal of these women is to men, and that they avoid uh, these candidates in particular uh, avoid any discussion of issues regarding to what would be considered traditional feminist concerns. That is, child support. Uh, access to, uh, you know, divorce uh, uh, um, and other sort of social issues that women have raised, contraception, sex education for the young, particularly young girls. Uh, none of these issues are, are raised by these, by these quote-unquote, uh, feminist Republican... Uh, Mama Grizzlies, women. yeah. So it's a peculiar kind of perversion that I, I see as, as a kind of perversion that their sexual appeal, and that's particularly through Sarah Palin, yeah. Her appeal is to the to white male voters and not to women. That's interesting, and and I'm guessing the same is probably true for for cute little Christine O'Donnell down there in Delaware. True, it's exactly the case. I mean, if you look at the polling data, that's who support her, and women do not. And Even Republican women don't. Well, that's I, I think it it's interesting. I hadn't really put these things together. You're you're shining a light on this that uh, it comes back once again. To the to the economic, the fiscal insurrectionists, as well as the you know uh, uh, social conservatives, it's about once again the white men, the white Christian men, feel like they're being put upon and their power is diminishing, and so the sexual aspect of it, as well as the economic aspect of it, comes right together to form the Tea Party. Fascinating, fascinating, yeah. very interesting stuff. And the uh, uh, there's a uh, 
The anti-abortion Tea Party candidate Joe Miller's win over Senator Lisa Murkowski in Alaska's Republican primary is evidence of these overlapping interests between fiscal and social conservatism, and they take heart in the uh, openly religious pitch that Tea Party guru Glenn Beck made during a large rally uh, recently. And uh, one attendee of the uh, Values Voter Summit, uh, Randy Sharp, a special project director of the American Family Association from Tupelo, Mississippi, a group that fights gay marriage, abortion, and pornography. She says, we, the two sides of the Tea Party, share the same social values. Economic issues are just the ones that are out front right now. And interesting along with this is the uh, sexual uh, uh, indiscretions, shall we say, of people like the uh, Tea Party candidate for governor of the state of New York, Palladino, who openly uh, shares internet porn with friends. That doesn't seem to to bother anybody. Here's you know one buddy sharing this special internet pornography with his buddies, and the Tea Party candidates. There's there's concern about uh, homosexuality and abortion and things like that. But the Tea Party candidates' words and actions regarding sexual indiscretions uh, don't seem to matter. And we have, uh, you know, these conservative Republicans who have these sexual indiscretions. There's no fallout. Now, you had John Edwards, Democrat, Spitzer, Democrat, pay a heavy price, but not Vitter, Ensign, and Sanford. And again, maybe that comes to what you're saying, white male domination. Well, it's also, I think that there's a profound sort of hypocrisy or cynicism within the, the Republican sort of establishment and also within the Tea Party movement that, you know, they'll allow these guys to, to do this. I mean, and remember that both Vitter and um, Carl Palladino uh, have extra, had not only extramarital relationships, but they fathered children extramaritally. Right. And they still... And these are not raised. I mean, look. I think it's it's a private. Personally, I think it's a private matter. Yeah. And then how people deal with this in their own private ma- life should be decided by the, those, you know, the husband, the wife, the family, you know, etc., who are immediately involved. It's it's really not a public issue. What's sad is that that the political right makes hay out of this stuff with regard to Spitzer and Edwards, for example. But when it comes to their own, they basically give it a wink and a nod and say, isn't that guy cool? And go on with, but he's got power, and let's keep him in office no matter what. <laughs> and I, I think it's this profound hypocrisy that underlies this whole movement. And they're not often called out about it. Well, it's interesting. Maybe maybe it's not so much hypocrisy. Maybe it's, once again, the guys can do what they want, you know, smoking, maybe. Uh, smoking cigars in the back room, and that's... That's okay that the guys can do that. Uh, And Senator Jim DeMint, one of the uh, gurus, I'm sure he'd hate that word, of the Tea Party, said recently, you cannot be a real fiscal conservative if you do not not understand the value of a culture that's based on values. So here we have the two coming together. Uh, Bert Cohen show here. We're talking with uh, David Rosen about uh, the perhaps some sexual essence of the Tea Party here and the culture war aspect of it. And and talk about wars, we hear little bits that, you know, the oil and water uh, uh, description of the, the fiscal conservatives versus the social conservative, and we've heard talk of a civil war within the Republican Party. I wonder, 
David, what you think of this, is it accurate or maybe kind of exaggerated and wishful thinking on the part of Democrats uh, in this upcoming election? Um, you know, I think it's, I don't, I don't honestly know. I mean, I, 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 it'll be interesting to see the kind, if, let's say, X number of these candidates win, both in the Senate and in the House, how far right um, they'll go, if, if, if at all. Because, you know, Obama came in as a centrist Democrat and sure. immediately accommodated to the military-industrial complex. He immediately accommodated to the corporate interests of the big banks. Yes, for sure. Uh, now, it'll be an interesting challenge to see whether, in fact, they, uh, these right-wing, you know, let's say the libertarian streak of this actually does anything about the subsidies that go to big oil and big uh, coal, big agriculture. I mean, these guys suck trillions of dollars out of our pockets every year. Oh, yeah. So the question, I don't think they'll do anything about this stuff. I think they'll just, uh, personally, I mean, I don't think any of them have any real principles. I think it's all rhetoric and that these will become the next generation of politis politicians, but going to the right, and, and they'll in institute a program um, which will basically further gridlock any efforts that Obama and the Democrats uh, promote for the second term. What will be an interesting response, and, and I must say that this comes from Paul Krugman, who writes the New York Times, is that we may be actually witnessing the radicalization of Obama and the Democrats. Because if they lose, as similar to that FDR lost, uh, in terms of uh, with a very kind of mealy-mouthed program when he first came in in 32, what happened was he then moved to the left yes. in terms of these social programs like uh, the, the Conservation Corps and all these other kind of you more sort of efforts to build a base of, of providing jobs for ordinary people. Right. The, the crisis was that, you know, the Republicans are pushing to the right, which is basically to give, give away more money to the rich and to make sure that all regulation is neutered. I mean, that's what they've done. Uh, we still have quote-unquote regulations, but it ends up being like what happened to in the... Um, you know, in the Gulf with, with regard to um, uh, BP and that, that's quote-unquote regulations where the regulators actually work for the companies that they're supposed to regulate. That's the, the, the Republican method of regulation. Yeah. Um, what might happen is that the, because of the, the failure of his first two years, I mean, again, I don't think it was a complete failure. I mean, he did succeed in many important things. Oh, yeah. But they never went far enough in almost anything to make it really... Uh, a transformative acts, whether that be health care or the financial re-regulation. But this may, in fact, force the Democrats to take a more populist and progressive approach. I mean, that's the only hope that I have. Oh, interesting. Because it's going to be two years where nothing is going to get done, because the Republicans and Democrats are going to be at a stalemate in the Congress, whether the House or the Senate. And Obama is, could actually then use that stalemate effectively to basically build a campaign for 2012, which he then reclaims a progressive agenda or moves to the more of a progressive position. I don't know if he has it in him. I don't <laughs> think his advisors. No. I mean, we knew uh, Emmanuel uh, no. didn't have it, Rahm Emanuel, and we know that Larry Summers right. it basically is a Republican oh, yeah. uh, and has no sort of popular economic philosophy or... or and we know that Geithner has nothing to say about anything other than serving the interests of the big banks. Right. So I don't know what will happen. Um, 
let's wait and see. But I think it gives an opportunity if there's real gridlock in the Congress, even worse than now, and the ideological polarization gets worse, it might provide an opportunity for a resurgent uh, Democrats regaining the kind of popular support with that, you know, let's give hope a chance here uh, mantra and actually have a program that does that. I don't, I don't know what else to suggest. Well, that, I, I appreciate the optimism. We always like to hear that on the Bert Cohen Show. David Rosen is our guest today. So wouldn't it be, that's an interesting point that, that you know, certainly Obama had his uh, economic team, the same old, same old Wall Street crowd there, and the and that helped, as you said, create the Tea Party because, hey, what about us? They didn't get the attention that they deserved, they meaning the, the middle class. So now, after all this accommodation and compromise, got them nothing, zero, maybe uh, it is a good time for Democrats to uh, be really Democrats because I often say if you know people are given a choice between a real Republican and an imitation Republican, they'll go for the real thing every time. Not that re- Democrats are really doing that. But I wonder, Dave, if you think, uh, well, there's a new ad in, in the state of New York claiming that gubernatorial candidate Carl Palladino is extreme on reproductive rights issues. So in that context... Do you think it would be smart for Democrats to link the Tea Party candidates with the social right, the the anti-gay, you know, anti-equal uh, marriage, anti-abortion? Would it be smart for Democrats to paint them that way? I think a lot of the Tea Party leaders are, are afraid of that very thing. If, if it may cost them at the polls, if the Tea Party becomes too identified with the social conservative movement. You know, I, I, I think... Um the big issue for this is the economy and jobs. And I think all these, ter- these secondary issues, while important, and I, you know, and they do fit, I don't think they're going to have much traction because I think there's a sense in which um, people want a real programmatic suggestion of what they need to do to get out of this uh, situation. And I think that to, uh, at this point, um, you know, the Obama team has begun to, and the Democrats haven't really offered any kind of programmatic way of going forward. That's true. They talk, and that's to me, you know, and one is they're beginning, he's, he, that is Obama on his stump speeches, has begun to sort of go after the Bush era, uh, the legacies of the Bush, you know, program, which the Republicans have basically adopted whole cloth. Yes. And I, there's no, so they haven't actually made a suggestion of how we go forward from this. That's true. He's touched on green jobs, great. You know, renewable energy, great. But, you know, those are pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff. That's true. The question is, how do we get there? What do we do? What am I going to do if I'm elected, you know, in the next two years and, and if I'm re-elected the next four years? There's no program. And he hasn't offered a vision that has actually captured anybody's imagination. And two, that people can actually believe it. I mean, the thing is, and, and I think that's the real trouble that the Democrats face now. They're sort of, you know, uh, at a local level, they're fighting to survive, whether, you know, uh, by state to state, if it's a senator or, or you know, regionally, if they're a, rep- a representative. And it's basically what I've done to bring home the bacon for you and how I'm a good guy. Right. The problem is they have no forward-looking plan for how America is going to get back, if ever, to where it was. And I, you know, I'm a pretty pessimistic about the ability of the United States to get back to the glory days of the post-Second World War era, which shaped the belief systems of these Tea Party um, activists. 
They want a white America that has an upward spiral of growth and opportunity that they're going to bequeath to their children. You know, I have two daughters um, who are, you know, grown young women, and, you know, they recognize very clearly that the lives that I and our gener- my generation of people in the 50s uh, is not their experience, their generation. They expect a life of, of sort of less opportunity and less being less, you know, socially comfortable and well-off. And that's what they expect. They, they basically are pessimists about the future of this country, and a lot of their friends are. And this, but the question is, either you, you present this as the new truth, that the world has changed, the new world order is in place, Europe and China and Asia are competing with the United States, and we've become one among equals versus the one and only. Now, no one wants to say that. Obama for sure is not going to say that. The Republicans will never go near that. They're, you know, they're, and what the Republicans are built believing in is basically that, that they're serving the interests of the top 5% of the population who control, what, 80 70% of the wealth. Yeah. To make them richer, we're becoming an oligopoly, like a you yes. know a third world country, and we like, are you know like Mexico or, or some of the worst of the South American countries. We and are heading toward... saying this out front, and then having a program to potentially redress it. You know, Obama has provides no leadership and no vision, and none of the Democrats are providing that. They're just holding on for whatever they can. Well, so maybe the answer is to, A, link the uh, uh, Tea Party, Republican Party with this uh, social conservatism that is kind of people don't care about as much as the, you know, the, the economic issues, and for the Democrats to offer something themselves to address the uh, fiscal problems that are happening so much. Uh, if Dave, people want, we've come toward the end of the hour here. Sure. If, if people want to uh, find out uh, more of your uh, articles, you've got a website to which you can point uh, them. No, actually, I, you know, I'm. A, you know what they can do is there's a um, if they go to counterpunch.org, which is a uh, I think that's perhaps where you saw my article or yes. Alternet, but mostly Counterpunch. Yeah. I write regularly for them. I mean, I have other things that I do in my life besides writing, and um, yeah, so there. it's the best thing to read my stuff is on Counterpunch. I write regularly for them. All right, I highly recommend that. Thank you. Very informative discussion, David Rosen. Thank you so much for being with us on the Bert Cohen Show. And Bert, thanks so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. All right. And uh, welcome your input. Email me, Bert, at thebertcohenshow.com. Thanks very much for listening.
See the gas in machines, it's a war.